0: Well, if you would now turn to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11, Uh, we come this morning to our uh, penultimate uh, sermon in our uh, first series uh, in the book of Isaiah. Uh, We'll conclude uh, next Sunday uh, looking at chapter 12. We'll take a little break, Lord willing, to go through Colossians for the next uh, little while before we come back to uh, Isaiah. But this morning we're going to look for a few minutes at Isaiah chapter 11, Uh, and so if you would open your Bibles and uh, uh, follow along with me as I read. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. Uh, And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave His hand over the river with His scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and He will lead people across in sandals." and there will be a highway from Assyria, from the remnant that remains of His people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we pray now for the help of Your Holy Spirit, that He would come and help us, that we might rightly read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest Your holy Word, and all for the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as we have come through this first section uh, of the book of Isaiah, from chapter 6 to here, as we have observed Isaiah's ministry, particularly to Ahaz and to the nation of Judah under his reign, we have seen both the dark ugliness of sin and the radiant beauty of God's grace towards the repentant. This has been a section in which we have heard some grim and solemn warnings from God about the devastation that will result from determined rebellion against Him. It has been made abundantly clear in these passages that God will not suffer fools, and He will not let the guilty go unpunished. The solemn but vital truth that has penetrated these verses, these chapters, is in the words of Matthew Henry, as we have quoted before, that nothing is more grievous to the God of heaven than to be distrusted. It has been made clear to us in these passages as God has repeated the same theme time and again. And as we know in Scripture, repetition equals emphasis. God has been emphatically clear in these passages that He will not treat lightly those who refuse to trust His promises and believe His Word and put their trust and their hope in Him. But as dark as some of these chapters have been, and as grim as some of this has been, in it all there has been a persistent thread of God's grace that has that has run through all of this. There's been a determination of grace, we could say, that despite the solemnity of these warnings. There has been this hope continually held out for anyone and everyone who puts their trust in God and in His Word, this promise that there is forgiveness to be found, there is security to be found. We've seen it implicitly. We've seen it explicitly. We've heard God's warnings of judgment against the righteous, And we've seen them thrown then into sharp relief by these constant promises of redemption. We've seen them thrown into sharp relief by this constant offer of grace and mercy for those who will cast themselves upon Him by faith. And here, as we come to the end of this first section of the the body of of, of Isaiah, As we come to its conclusion here and then in chapter 12 next week, what we find gloriously is that the final word on which this section ends is not maybe as we would have expected a final warning of God's judgment, but rather the the word that is left ringing in the ears and in the hearts of Isaiah's audience is an extended meditation on the wonders of God's grace. We're introduced here right at the beginning of chapter 11 to this enigmatic figure that is simply identified as the shoot of Jesse. And that's one of these words, one of these names, phrases that we come across in Scripture when we're reading, and we we know it's important. Uh, but I think for many of us, its importance is somewhat obscured. And so, to understand really what this chapter is about, because all of it is really just exegeting and teasing apart the work of this this man, this figure, this shoot of Jesse, in order to understand it, we have to try and get back into the mindset of Isaiah's original audience and ask, well, what did this mean for these eighth-century B.C. Judeans? How? Did they understand this phrase, the shoot of Jesse, or or even for that matter, how, how did they understand Jesse? Who did they understand him to be? Well, we have to be aware, as we begin this chapter, that Jesse's significance in the Old Testament is only ever that he is the father of King David. Jesse is otherwise an unremarkable figure in Scripture. The fame that he is given in Scripture lies simply in the fact that David was his son. Now, keeping that simple fact in mind, this chapter then opens up in a beautiful, incredible way, because with that we realize that everything that Isaiah is speaking of here is only then the fulfillment of what God has promised to David. That's really what Isaiah is referring to here. That is what Isaiah is talking about in this chapter. And we can imagine how by the time the people of God reached the 8th century B.C., God's promises with David would have become something distinctly confusing. we're about 250 years after God's covenanting with David. And within those 250 years, things have degenerated to a point where we can imagine that in Israel and in Judah, even the godly remnant amongst them must have been wondering what on earth has happened to those promises. But do you remember the promise that God made to David? Do you remember that covenant in 2 Samuel 7? It was a, a beautiful and a wonderful elaboration on what God had said before. We, we know how the covenants build on one another throughout the Old Testament, and every one of them expanding and elaborating on the one before, so that by the time we come to 2 Samuel 7, and God promises to His people that He will bring for, from David a son, to establish this kingdom, that He's talking about that kingdom that He first promised to Abraham that was, we just read, repeated to Jacob. And in this covenant, God said to David that He would grant them this king, and this king would 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 appoint a place for His people so that they would dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. He went on and said that, God said to David, I will raise up uh, your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But as the Judeans in the 8th century B.C. looked around, this promise must have only served to exasperate their pain and their confusion. Where on earth was this kingdom that God had promised? Repeatedly, to his people. The kingdom now lay shattered, divided into two parts the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Far from finding rest from all their enemies, they are threatened by the prospect of this imminent Assyrian invasion, which pain upon pain we have seen God say was coming from his very hand. He was the one calling them to come against His people. How does this all fit together? How, does it, how were the people of God to understand these covenant promises? There is no doubt God was not bluffing when He threatened to summon the Assyrians to defeat Israel and Judah for their prideful resistance to the gospel. God has been emphatically clear because of the rampant disobedience in Israel and Judah, the enemies of God's people will come and they will devastate the land. And they will do it by the direction of God Himself. The pagan Assyrians coming, destabilizing, undermining the pride and self-confidence of these Judeans. Now, we have seen as the golden thread of God's grace has run through these passages, we have seen how God has a good purpose in all of this, a purpose to bless His people even as He wounds them. Right? We have seen God say repeatedly that through this affliction, He will open the eyes of His disobedient people to, to the reality of their frailty and to the fact that they were not nearly as strong or as self-capable as they like to believe. Right? We have seen God be crystal clear in these passages that there was nothing gratuitous about what He was about to do to His people. This was not God losing His temper with them, but this was God as a loving Father chastising His people, bringing, as the Puritans would say, wounds of grace into their lives, that they might be led to repentance and faith. But still, even with all of that, the question remained. There was this great theological elephant that was in the corner of the room. How can any of this be squared with the covenant promises that God has made with His people? And specifically, how can it be squared with the promise that God made to David? Right? We can understand what is about to happen, and, and I think we can understand why it's about to happen, but how, how does it fit with, God, with what God has previously said that He would do for His people? Right? The question must have run through their minds. I think it runs through our minds as we, as we read this. Does this just mean that those promises have failed? Right? Does this mean that the sin of God's people have have frustrated the fulfillment of His promise, and so God now has reverted to a plan B. That looked good for a while. That that was all going along great for a while, but but the sin of God's people have have stymied it. The the sin of Solomon has, has broken the trajectory of those promises. Solomon's idolatry is what has led to the division of this kingdom. It was Solomon's idolatry that breached the dam and laid the groundwork for the spiritual descent, the fruit of which Israel and Judah are now reaping. So, is that it? Was Solomon's sin so great that it put a stop to the redemptive purposes of God, and now he has had to come up with another plan. It's how it appears, but of course it can't be true, right? And the godly remnant must have known that it couldn't be true. All of God's people have known that the Word of God is unbreakable, and they have known that the promises of God are sure and certain. But right? we, we have it I think, beautifully encapsulated in our doctrine of providence that our shorter catechism summarizes in question 11. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. And that is not something you understand that the Westminster Divines invented. This is the testimony of Scripture, it is something that all of God's people have known throughout all of redemptive history, that God is powerful, and He preserves, and He governs all His creatures and all their actions. It's what we're seeing in the story of Jacob and Esau, God even using heinous sin to bring about good for His people. As Dr. Lawson has said in our study on the attributes of God. It is one of the foundational premises of our faith that God never learns anything, and God has never learned anything. So, if we know all of that, then how does this fit together? Well, here I think we are told. The promises that God gave to David were not fulfilled in Solomon, clearly, and they were not fulfilled in any of the other kings that came from him but here we're told that that is not just because of their sin, but rather it is because none of those merely human kings could ever fulfill these promises. In order for what God had promised to be fulfilled, they needed more than just a man. Now, no doubt when David heard the promise that God gave to him, he and virtually everyone after him would have thought that the promise that God was making was relatively simple, that he was talking about peace within the physical land of Canaan. The, The seemingly plain understanding of what God says to David is that he will quiet their political enemies, that he will strengthen their borders, that he will keep them safe from the attacks of nefarious kingdoms. It would seem on one sense that the promise that God gave to David is one that is wholly fitting for the July the fourth weekend, that He was promising to give him life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that the people of God would be able to dwell at peace within the borders of the land into which Joshua had led them. But here, into all of this confusion and turmoil and and questioning and doubt and uncertainty, here God comes and He explains to Isaiah just what the promised son of David, this shoot of Jesse, would actually do. And as He comes and as He explains it here, we realize that this was not only something that these kings did not do, it was something that they could not do. Right? Here God opens up this promise. He unpacks that promise to to David for us, and He shows us its true nature, and He shows us that it is far greater than anything any normal king could accomplish. This descendant of Jesse, this offspring of David, this son of David, God says He will come as this promised righteous king, and He will establish a kingdom that goes far beyond anything that any of them could have ever comprehended, even in their wildest dreams. Look look at what God promises here. We don't have time to unpack every allusion and illustration that is used here, but taking it at the 36,000-foot view, we understand that what is being promised is that this king will bring a final and full defeat of all, all of the enemies of God's people. By the power of God, this King will lead a glorious defeat in which all of His and our enemies will be utterly defeated, never to afflict the people of God again. This promised Son will gather in all of His people, and He will bring them into this perfect kingdom, and they will dwell under His perfect and righteous rule. His people will be no longer burdened by sin, by pride, by self-reliance, but they will be free to live under the rule of this holy benevolent King. They will be free to live under this King whose delight, whose joy, whose, whose, whose life is wrapped up in the law of God. This is a king who is clothed in righteousness. This is a king who will tolerate no sin, but who will protect and care for the vulnerable. It's a picture that was so far away from anything that these 8th century B.C. Judeans knew. But it's a picture that is so far away from anything that that, that we can know. All of our human rulers, even the best of them, have mixed motives. Even the best of our human rulers are sinners who have their blind spots and their weaknesses. Even the best of human rulers have limitations that mean that even when their intentions and their policies are good, they are not always able to enact them. But not this king. The picture that we are given here is of a of a man who is undefeatable and unstoppable. It is a king who comes in the unstoppable power of God, and every obstacle is removed from his path, and he is able to finally and fully bring all of God's purposes and promises to their glorious fulfillment. He is coming to establish this perfect kingdom of perfect peace. Now, I don't think it takes a lot of consideration to realize that what is being promised here is a king who will bring us back to Eden. It's what's promised in verses 12 through 16, the description of perfect peace for the people of God the realization of 2 Samuel 7.10, this promise that that the people of God will be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. It is the promise that the canes of this world shall fall before the justice of God, that the ahazes of this world will be brought to account for their transgression of the law of God, that the wicked will be confronted by the perfect, terrifying righteousness of God and the people of God will be brought in to find this rest that they so desperately crave. And if we're struggling to get our minds around it, we're given in verses six through nine, the most vivid and elaborate illustration of the character of this new kingdom. God says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." But you hear what Isaiah is saying, there'll be such a renewal, there'll be such a remaking, that even those animals that are are carnivorous and predatory will instead protect and nurture the prey that they formerly devoured. It's a radically new kingdom. It's a return to Eden. It's a paradise rediscovered. And When we see it like that, we realize that those promises that God had given to David, really they had nothing to do with the physical land of Canaan. What God was promising to David, as is elaborated here, is is a new creation. It's a new world. It's one that is so utterly transformed and reshaped by the glorious work of this shoot from the stump of Jesse that it becomes almost unrecognizable to us. It is a world that is so totally transformed that even that hostility that we consider to be natural is put away, and perfect peace and perfect rest comes in its place. But we might well ask, who is this enigmatic figure that is so central to this promise? Well it's Jesus it has to be Jesus. Because the only one who can do this is not only an heir of David, but he must be God Himself. And what this describes is such a radical transformation. It is such a deep regeneration, a deep remaking and renewal that the only one who could possibly do this is God Himself. And in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, we see God Himself come to fulfill His promise and to do what those merely human kings could never do. That's what Paul writes in Colossians 1.19, where he speaks of Jesus descended from David through His adoptive father, Joseph. Paul writes, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. What's Paul talking about in Colossians 1.19? He's talking about Isaiah 11. He is talking about Jesus come as this, this shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's talking about God incarnate what did Jesus come to do? He came to fulfill this covenant. It's what Matthew says in Matthew 4-7, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus going throughout Galilee saying, repent, because what Isaiah has spoken of is now at hand in my coming. This Isaiah 11, kingdom of heaven, established by Jesus in his first advent, is what will be brought to fulfillment by Jesus in his second advent, in which he will come, as he says in Revelation 21.5, to make all things new. So, how do we get access to this beautiful, wonderful new creation? How do we get into this new perfected Eden? How do we find this peace with God forevermore? Well, it is, of course, by putting our faith in Christ. It is by repenting of our sin and our self-reliance and our self-confidence and our self-centeredness. It is by trusting in those gospel promises of God. It's the message that has run through this passage, warning that God will judge those who do not trust Him and who do not listen to His Word, but the wonderful promise that the blessings of God are free for those who will repent and believe the good news, for those who give up their own little kingdoms, for those who come and cast their crowns at the feet of Christ. These are the lavish blessings that are to be found. It's John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will be granted eternal life. Christian, this is your hope. This, in Isaiah 11, this is the celestial city that sits on the horizon of your life. This is the paradise to which you are going, to which God will bring you safely. If you have not yet put your faith in Christ, do it now. And you too will be welcomed in to find rest with us under the rule of this righteous king. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that comes to us with so many different ways of describing the same beautiful reality. We thank you that in your grace, in your condescension to us, you rotate the diamond of the gospel, that we might see the many facets of its gospel of its beauty, and that we might run to Jesus. Father, we thank you for this description of his kingdom. And we look forward to that day when he comes to make all things new. And he will bring such a radical peace that even the predators will lie down with their prey. Oh Lord, we long for that day. We pray that in the meantime that you would fix our hearts upon it. That you would set our eyes upon that celestial city. And that we would move forward characterized by this gospel hope. Father, we pray it all. Jesus' name. Amen.